0: Dale, that hymn is a keeper. So, very much enjoyed that. Um, And hearing everyone sing it was uh, a real blessing to my faith. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that uh, you would Continue to pour out your spirit. We pray that you would be our teacher. We pray that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the most fascinating things about studying Luke's gospel is actually what Luke does not say. Uh, You'll remember that Luke begins his gospel by telling us that he did extensive research, that he he interviewed many different people uh, to compile his narrative of the life and work of Christ. It is an indisputable fact that Luke relied on the gospel of Mark uh, as he wrote his gospel. In fact, he quotes regularly from Mark. Even uh, he he quotes uh, whole passages word for word. But then, without warning, Luke will chop off many details that Mark tells us. Even though Luke is relating to us the very same story that Mark is relating. And this morning's passage is a case in point. Mark's account of the healing of this demon possessed uh, boy is twice as long as Luke's account. I mean, it's, it's actually, a, Mark's account is a little longer than twice as long as Luke's account. And so, um, here's where it gets interesting. Um, by leaving many of the details uh, out, that Mark includes in his gospel, Luke is alerting us that he is making a very distinct point. There's a reason why he's leaving out these details from Mark. So when you're clued into that fact, um, that Luke is making a, a distinct point, then the small but unique details that Luke adds actually begin to jump off the page. And so i want to point some of these unique details out to you. So I hope you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 9. I hope that you make that a habit to keep your Bibles open during the sermon. And um, I want you to see what I'm talking about. Some of the things that Luke adds that Mark does not add, even though Luke chopped off Uh, Over half of what Luke said. So our passage begins on verse 37. And there's two details that Mark does not tell us about that Luke includes. The first, he says, on the next day. Matthew's account leaves this out. Mark's account leaves this out. But Luke tells us, on the very next day. And then the next phrase, when they had come down the mountain. Again, Matthew and Mark leave this off. Luke here is particularly drawing our attention to what had happened the previous day on top of the mountain. Well, if you've got a reasonably good memory, uh, you know what happened. Uh, You can look in your Bibles if your Bible's open in your lap, or you can remember that last Sunday... uh, The the sermon was about the transfiguration of Jesus Christ on top of the mountain. So that's what has happened. Uh, Jesus was transfigured in the presence of Peter and James and John. Neither Mark nor Matthew make any real effort to draw these two uh, accounts together in our minds. Uh, Mark and Matthew, they're not as concerned that we connect what happens down the mountain with this demon-possessed boy with what happened on top of the mountain with the transfiguration of Christ. But Luke absolutely wants us to tie those two events together. Uh, Then look at verse 43. Verse 43 And all were astonished at the majesty of God. I don't know about you, but when you read this passage, when you heard Shane read it a few minutes ago, did this word majesty jump out at you? I bet it did. Uh, Normally, we would expect that the crowd would be astonished at the power of God or the glory of God, not his majesty. You know, this, this Greek word for majesty only appears three times in the New Testament. And one of those three times, well, first of all, the here in Luke's gospel, it's the first time it appears in the New Testament. Secondly, it appears in the book of Acts, Acts 19, and it's used, uh, a pagan is talking about the majesty of Artemis the Great. And so... Uh, It's not talking about the majesty of God. And then the only other time this particular Greek word um, is used, it's used by Peter in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 and 17. And in that passage, Peter says he was an eyewitness of Jesus' majesty as he witnessed the transfiguration. Well... We're looking at the day after the the Transfiguration, verse forty three. The people saw his Majesty. Peter saying he saw the Majesty of Christ on top of the mountain. Is it a coincidence that the the only two times in the New Testament that it that uh, Majesty in refer in in reference to God's glory is used is in connection with. The day before, on the the mountaintop, and then the next day, um, after the transfiguration. So I believe, uh, and several commentators uh, support this. In fact, I I learned it from them. Uh, Luke is drawing a connection between the majesty of Christ displayed on the mountaintop during the transfiguration and the majesty of Christ revealed in the healing of this demon-possessed boy. I. Howard Marshall uh, makes this point when he writes, What was visible to the chosen three on the mountain is here visible to a greater number. And I, I, I draw this point out because this perspective of the uh, union between what happened on the mountain and what happened at the bottom of the mountain will drive our application for this passage. So here's what's happening in the passage. Jesus, Peter, and James, Pe- Jesus, Peter James, and John had spent the night on the mountain. Uh, but apparently the other nine disciples were down the mountain. And a great crowd recognized the disciples. They knew if the disciples are there, Jesus is going to make an appearance. So a great crowd began to gather, and it, gathered, it was a, a tremendous crowd then had gathered around the nine disciples uh, who um, were not present at the transfiguration. And when Jesus arrives uh, with Peter, James, and John, Things were starting to get out of hand. Mark's account tells us that the nine disciples were arguing with uh, several religious leaders about something. I don't know what they were arguing about, but they were arguing in earnest. And prior to this argument uh, breaking out, a father had presented his son to the disciples. And he asked them to cast this demon out of the boy, but they were unable to do so. And so when the father saw Jesus, he renewed his request for his son. Verses 38 through 40. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. This is a heartbreaking picture. Matthew and Mark's Gospels actually give more detail. And if you were to read Matthew and Mark's Gospels, it's even more heartbreaking than the picture that Luke draws for us. This boy was suffering tremendously. Luke's account uh, reminds me of the girl uh, in Uganda when I was there five years ago. I've mentioned her before. We were in a school. Doctor Krobendam was preaching. As he's preaching, a girl comes forward, and she says she wants to receive Jesus Christ. And Doctor Krobendam asked her a question, and as he asked that question, the girl passed out completely. I can still remember the sound of her of her flesh slapping the concrete. She she. Uh, she she was she was out cold um I was the closest one to Dr Crobendom, so he pointed at me and he said, "Keep her head up so i i go down on the floor and I put her head in my lap and she was drooling unusually um an unusual amount and um i I still try to to uh to work through all the details. This is so traumatic an experience. Um, and uh, Dr. K and Dr. Sharuma and Martin Odie and also some of the school administration took her back to the infirmary. They actually put me in charge of the school. They said, okay, you take over. And so uh, we continued to talk to the uh, the children about the gospel. We split up and went back to classrooms, all the different missionaries, um, went back with with their classes and and talked about the gospel. Well, I was very interested to know what had happened with this girl, so I asked Dr. K and I asked um, Martin Odie, who was one of the Ugandan uh, leaders with us. And they said, well, she was demon-possessed and the demon came out of her. And if you're thinking that these were backwards-thinking people that reject medical science, Dr. Krobendam in his day was a world-class scholar. Um, Dr. Saruma, Dr. Ezra Saruma, uh, was the finance minister for the nation of Uganda. In fact, uh, he was uh, named as the best finance Fa- finance minister for the whole continent of Africa in 2008. He's a, a fellow at the Brookings Institution uh, and served as the chancellor for Uganda's most prestigious university. And so, uh, you know, these are, these are not backwards people that are trying to explain away um, a, a seizure, you know, by demon possession. And I I do want to to make this point. The devil is real. I assume everybody knows that. But I think it's helpful to uh, hear your pastor say it as forthrightly as possible. Because people who believe in the devil, they are not scientific. You know, they're backwards, uh, our culture tells us. Uh, The devil is real, demons are real, demon possession is real. Satan's strategy uh, in the West, in the Western Hemisphere, is generally to promote secularism and materialism. As we see the horrific way that this demon treats this poor boy in our passage, it should remind us that Satan's goal is to destroy humanity. He he has no mercy. He had no mercy whatsoever on this boy. Although demons are not possessing people in large numbers in our country, demonic presence is very active in our culture. Uh, How else can we explain the state of our nation, the thinking patterns of, of people in the world? It makes no sense. You know, how can we explain Hitler, Himmler, you know, uh, Nazi Germany, and the brutality, the lack of any compassion for the old, for, for the Jews? You know, ultimately, there is evil in the world, and there is evil at present um, in our culture and even though we're not we don't see demon possessions like we might see in other parts of the world it does not mean that there are no demons that there is no devil and that he is not active in our culture I mean, it, sometimes i think we have lost our minds as a people i don't want to pass over verse 40 too quickly Verse 40, he said, And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Look back at the first couple of verses of chapter 9. And remember, how it's been a long time. We've been in chapter 9 quite a while, but uh, you, you might be able to remember this. Verses 1 and 2. And Jesus called the twelve to together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. They had a very successful preaching tour. Uh, healing many, casting out many demons, preaching the the kingdom of God. But now they are presented with this boy, with a demon, and they're failing. They're unable to cast this demon out. Uh, It was not because they had lost their powers. There's no indication that Jesus gave them this power temporarily and then withdrew it. Uh, It was not because they were using the wrong technique in exercising demons. Rather, it was their unbelief. The disciples had fallen into some type of unbelief. Matthew and Mark's uh, accounts make this very explicit. The disciples asked Jesus why they could not cast out the demon. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, It's because of your little faith. In Mark's gospel, Jesus added that this kind of demon cannot be dri- driven out by anything except for prayer, implying that the disciples had not been praying. In fact, um, I know it wasn't the nine disciples, but it was James and Peter and John. If you look back into to the uh, passage about the transfiguration, what were what were Peter and James and John doing? at uh, the very beginning of the transfiguration. They were asleep. You know, and this is not the the only time that we're going to find them asleep in the presence of Jesus. Uh, They they were very good at sleeping in prayer. Uh, People tell me sometimes that they are very good at at sleeping in prayer. In fact, if they have a hard time going to sleep, they'll read their Bible or, or start praying. Well... Um, the disciples had been had fallen into a type of unbelief. I believe the type of unbelief that the disciples had fallen into, unfortunately, is a type with which we are all too familiar. As new Christians, we're all we're so loving with so in love with Christ. We're in awe of. Um, of how difficult it is to live for him, to break old habits. And so we just cast ourselves on Jesus. Jesus, help me. Otherwise, I just won't be able to make any progress whatsoever in the Christian life. And so continually, we're just leaning upon Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. And Christ does. A lot of incredible things in our lives. We see patterns of faithfulness begin to develop in our lives. We step out in faith and do things that we just couldn't have imagined ourselves doing previously. Um, doing things for Christ and His kingdom. I remember as a brand new Christian, uh, I would stop at every convenience store. If there was no one else in the store, I would ask the, the clerk, uh, got two questions for you, a little riddle. Um, If you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. How can this be? What does this mean? And I would use this as an opportunity to to witness to people all the time. And I led several people to Christ. And now I think, why don't I do that as much as I, I used to? And what happens is familiarity sets in. What do they say? Familiarity breeds contempt. We begin to take Christ's grace for granted. And then we begin to confuse um, the power of the Holy Spirit for our own abilities. You know, we think, well, I've done this in the past, I can do it today. And so our prayers become less consistent, less fervent. Because we're not relying on Christ in the same way for dependence as we once did. And therefore our lives evidence less power of the Holy Spirit. Then we begin to wonder why we're less devoted to Christ than when we first became believers. We still have a real faith in Christ. But at the same time, we're experiencing a type of unbelief nonetheless. Preachers are especially susceptible to this type of unbelief. You know, we preachers like to measure our success in the ministry um, by how well things are going. And everybody compliments us if things are going well. And so we get the big head. We get full of ourselves. You can't be full of yourself and full of the Holy Spirit at the same time. Uh, So, what ends up happening is we substitute technique and experience for our dependence upon Christ. And the power of the gospel fades into the background. I know this pattern from repeated experience in my own life. And not only For individuals, not only for pastors, but whole congregations, even whole denominations, fall into these patterns of unbelief. A church starts out with such faithfulness, especially a church plant, when there's, you know, they have to rely on God for everything, and they are so dependent upon God. But somewhere along the way, they begin experiencing some some success, and what happens? prayer becomes a little less important. The prayers become a little less fervent. Traditions and routines take precedence over the power of the Holy Spirit. Orthodoxy becomes the only standard for faith, rather than orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Um, Orthodox living. uh, Faith-filled, Christ-centered living. And Eventually, even orthodoxy becomes less important. And it's a subtle unbelief, but make no mistake, it is unbelief. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 41. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Who is Jesus talking to? Was He talking to the Father? In some sense. Was He talking to the crowd? In some sense. But His, his comment is most um, squarely directed at His own disciples. Uh, Jesus' rebuke here, when He calls them a faithless and twisted generation, He's not just pulling that out of the air. Rather, his paraphrase is a, um, or, or his his rebuke is a paraphrase from Luke chapter thirty-two in the Song of Moses, in verse five and verse twenty. God calls His own people a crooked and twisted generation because remember the Israelites after the after the Exodus, God would say, "Go this way," and they say, "We want to go back this way." You know, God says, trust me here. Well, we want to do this. God says, worship me alone. And they fashion an idol. Uh, After the exodus from, from Egypt, God's people rebelled against God time and time again. Why did they rebel? The book of Hebrews tells us because they were an unbelieving people. And their unbelief god termed as uh, it said that it constituted them being a twisted um, and um, and faithless generation and so this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples you're faithless you're twisted and let me just make a a, a statement uh as on the nature of unbelief. You know, in our culture, every time you turn on the media, you're getting, we're getting a constant feed uh, from our televisions or from our computers or from our telephones of uh, people who do not believe the gospel. And yet they speak with such sophistication. And God says that sophistication really is masking over faithlessness. It's masking over um, crookedness. It's masking over twisted thinking, twisted hearts. And so Jesus is saying that the disciples were not able to heal the boy because they lacked faith. Now, at the beginning of chapter 9, they were able to heal many. They were able to cast out many demons all over Galilee, everywhere they preached. They were doing miracles. But it appears that the disciples now, uh, little time removed, a couple of weeks removed from that, they've gotten the big heads. They're not praying, and so they're relying on their past success for their present abilities. When what they should have been doing is relying on and entrusting themselves to their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They had not yet learned that God's power is performed only in human weakness, it is perfected in human weakness. They had not learned that it is not ministry technique, but it is the Holy Spirit power that pushes forward transformation, that pushes forward the kingdom of God. It's a lesson we need to remind ourselves over and over again. Because of their lack of faith, this child was not healed until Jesus showed up. I think this implies that we miss a lot of blessings by being faithless ourselves. How many blessings do we miss out on because of our lack of faith? Jesus tells us to ask, to seek, to knock. He re- this threefold repetition is to say Jesus is telling us: be persistent. Don't just ask once; ask persistently. Don't just ask casually; ask fervently. What does one of the Puritans said? Um, God hears no more than the heart speaks. And if the heart be, de- be dumb, God will certainly be deaf. What is the quality of your prayer life? Is it being driven by an absolute dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it dry and weak and about ready to blow away because you're really trusting in your own abilities? the problems in your life are you taking them to Christ urgently or are you relying on your own wisdom your own capabilities Jesus says ask he says seek he says knock and what if we don't do that Well, the Bible says you do not have because you do not ask. James could not be any more straightforward. James chapter 4. In regard to prayer, we do not have because we do not ask. Jesus is saying here that a living faith must stand at the center of our confession. Faith and prayer are indispensable for us to press forward with the work of the gospel. Faith and prayer are vital for the health of our family. Faith and prayer are necessary for us to take hold of God's great and gracious promises. Again, I ask, how many blessings, how many of God's blessings do we miss out on because of our lack of faith? because of our lack of prayer. I want to end by looking at the first part of verse 43, but we're not ready to conclude yet because I want to set verse 43, the first part of verse 43 aside for a moment and examine the second half of verse 43 up to verse 45. In fact, um, in your... um, If you have the ESV open in front of you, it starts a new paragraph halfway through verse 43. So I'm going to start with that new paragraph. But while they were all marveling at everything Jesus was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. You hear how earnestly he is? Let these words sink into your ears, Jesus is saying, in the most emphatic way that he can do it. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Apparently, they did not really let it sink into their ears. Certainly, it did not take root in their heart because, verse 45, but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask Him about this saying. What Jesus is doing here is he is putting his finger right on the nub of the issue. The disciples, their unbelief was rooted in a this-worldly faith. They were looking for Jesus to be a great king, and they would be serving at his side, enjoying the glory in his presence. But Jesus here is seeking to destroy their this-worldly aspirations by saying He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. He doesn't mention the resurrection. He he just mentions His arrest in order to disabuse the disciples of their vainglorious dreams. Jesus did not come here to reign. Jesus came here to earth to die. Jesus did not come here to sit on a throne. He came to hang on a cross Jesus did not come here to rule subjects. He came here to be the the atoning sacrifice for sinners. And that's what the disciples needed to understand. But at this point, they were unable. Their faith was not allowing them to embrace what Jesus was saying as clearly as He could say. Now, moving back to to the beginning of verse 43 as we move to the conclusion. Verse 43, um, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. I think what what Luke is saying here is that the people witnessed the same majesty of God in the healing of this demon-possessed boy as Peter... And James and John witnessed on top of the mountain with the transfiguration. This boy's transformation was the lens through which the crowds witnessed the majesty of God. So then it leads us to the question how can the world witness the majesty of God today? Jesus is not going around transfigurizing transfigura- himself. Uh, Powerful exorcisms and healings are not the norm in the world, much less here in our Western society. So how then can the world witness the majesty of God? Philippians 2.15 is very interesting in this regard. Notice in Philippians 2.15 that uh, Paul is paraphrasing Deuteronomy chapter 32, but he puts a positive spin on it. Philippians 2, I'll start with verse 14 since uh, verse 15 is in the middle of a sentence. The Apostle Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a what? In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Deuteronomy 32. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. You display the majesty of God, holding fast to the word of life. By exercising faith in Christ, or as Paul puts it, by holding fast to the word of life, we become the means of displaying the majesty of God. Like the moon has no power or light in itself, yet it dominates the night sky because of the light that it receives from the sun, we shine brightly with the majesty of God by entrusting ourselves, by relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ. His light shines through us. It's an active faith that we are called to exercise here. It's a praying faith that we are called to exercise. It is a dependent faith that we are called to exercise. So I want to encourage you by the grace of Christ. Live for Christ. Entrust yourself to Him without reserve. Shine for Him that the world may see the majesty of God through you as we pray together. Lord God, we blush to think how slender at times our faith really is. Lord, we read of those heroes of the gospel in the book of Hebrews who through faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, stopped even the mouths of lions. And we are ashamed at our at the unbelief that resides in our hearts. Lord, so much of the time, we feel at a loss because fear has gripped our hearts. We ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon our poor, forgetful, and unbelieving heart even the moment that doubts and fears and misgivings begin to arise. God, help us to see that in all our dangers, all our difficulties, all our trials, that our Lord Jesus Christ is with us and that He has promised through His strength to give us His power as we rely upon Him. So, Lord, help us to make ourselves weak that Christ might be strong in and through us.